Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to a new series of the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Our guest on this episode, Melanie Joy, is a Harvard-educated psychologist and the award-winning author of six books, including Getting Relationships Right, How to Build Resilience and Thrive in Life, Love and Work. She joined David Malone in a live stream event to tell us more. You know, the first thing I have to say is that you do paint quite a dark picture of how badly you think people have been taught how to have relationships. I mean, it, you seem to be saying it's not just that people might not have learned good tricks, but they've actively been taught bad ones. Is it really that bad? I don't think, I wouldn't say that people have actively been taught bad tricks or bad moves. It's just that none of us, I mean, when you think about it, most of us, have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And we don't get a single formal lesson and how to relate in a way that's healthy. And the way that we do learn how to relate, which includes, of course, how to communicate, communicates the primary way we relate is often through our role models, our parents who learned from their parents, uh, who learned from, you know, or we learn from Hollywood or we learn from our elected leaders and so on. And in general, because none of us has really been taught the basic rules of healthy relating and healthy communication, we just sort of stumble along doing the best we can, which very often brings about the opposite of outcomes of what we actually want. And so And of course, we're also born into social systems that condition us to relate to each other and ourselves in ways often that are problematic and harmful. So I think we all really need to learn to build what I call relational literacy, which is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. When you think about, right, some of the most pressing problems, not only in our personal lives, but also in our world, you know, war, poverty, racism, patriarchy, animal exploitation, climate change, domestic abuse, and so on, you know, you can see that these problems all share a common denominator. And that common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, between individuals, between humans and other animals or humans in the environment, and even, you know, between us and ourselves. We're always relating to ourselves through, for example, our inner self-talk or the choices that we make that impact our future selves. So if we really hope to kind of get out of living in the relational dark ages, you know, so... (laughs) 
we really have to commit to building relational literacy. And when we raise our collective level of relational literacy, we won't vote for relationally toxic leaders or relationally problematic policies and, and protocol anymore. Is this something that you come across in your professional life then? I mean, do, you, do people come to you saying help, basically? Well, I am a psychologist, and um, but I'm not working as a clinical psychologist. I've been a coach for a long time, but my work has been in social transformation. I, I run an NGO, an international NGO called Beyond Carnism. And my area of specialization is in the psychology of social change and the psychology of, of oppression. And my you know, big question was, how is it that we have so many problems in our world when we know that most of us, we know that humans are hardwired to empathize with others? We also know that we all seek meaningful connection. We want to avoid the pain of disconnection. And yet at the same time, most of these pressing problems in our world are you know, made possible because not enough people recognize the toxicity and are, will, are able to, to sort of change their behavior. So they help to create more productive systems. So I see this in my work, certainly. I hear you know, in my personal life and in my life supporting, I, I work with a lot of advocates who are working towards social change, supporting those people, thousands and thousands of people around the world again and again and again. There's just a tremendous amount of suffering, not just on this sort of more social level, but on an interpersonal level, a tremendous amount of suffering in our lives because of our struggle with relating in a way that's healthy and effective. I mean, if you think about your own life, you know, most of us, when we look back over our lives, can see that this is where a lot of our suffering and pain comes from, you know, whether it's problems in our intimate relationship or struggles we're having, even with online trolls or our colleagues, this is where our pain comes from. And this is also our relationships are also often where our greatest joy and sense of authentic connection comes from. Mm. I mean, it's, it, as you say, it, it is a conundrum, isn't it? Because you say, People are hardwired to be empathetic, and yet somehow we manage to blunder around in life, often making other people that we care about unhappy and then making ourselves unhappy. It is, it is odd, as you say, that, how that could be. What are some of the things that have struck you most about the places where people unwittingly go wrong? Well, maybe we can start with talking about what I call the formula for healthy relating. And this can kind of ground the conversation and the rest of it will make a bit more sense when we talk about where people most often go wrong. So relational literacy is based on many, many principles and, and practices and tools, but they all stem from this one formula. It's what I call, as I said, the formula for healthy relating. If you think about it, every interaction or every Every relationship, I should say, a relationship is really a series of interactions, can reflect this formula or not. And here's the formula. We practice integrity and we honor dignity. And this leads to a sense of greater security and greater connection. So when we practice integrity, that simply means that we act in alignment with our core values of fairness, justice and compassion, caring, right? We treat others the way we would want to be treated. We treat them with respect. And when we honor someone's dignity, that means that we perceive them and treat them as having basic inherent worth, that we see them as no less worthy than anybody else on this planet, including ourselves, of being treated with respect, of occupying space on the planet. So when you practice integrity and honor dignity, this increases the sense of security and connection in your relationship or your interaction. 
And this formula, like most things in life, exists on a spectrum. It's not that an interaction or a relationship is, you know, healthy or unhealthy. It's it's more or less so, right? So if you think about like your own life, for example, and you think about a relationship in your life, that's a really good relationship. Chances are you trust that that other person treats you and will treat you with respect. You feel that your dignity is honored. They don't see you as less than, and you feel secure and connected with them. And if you think about a relationship in your life that's lousy, maybe it's somebody you haven't even met, some like online person who's attacking you or something, chances are the opposite is true. They violate their integrity when they interact with you. They harm your dignity, perceive and treat you as less than, less worthy of being treated with respect, and you feel disconnected and insecure with them. And the wonderful thing about this formula is that it applies pretty much universally it applies to interactions. It applies to relationships. It, of course, applies to our communication. Communication is the primary way we relate. It applies to how social groups interact. It applies to how we treat other animals and also the environment. And we can always just come back to this at any moment in time when you're having an interaction that's not going well, you can pause and come back to this formula and ask yourself if you feel like the other person is treating you with the formula or practicing it toward you. And if you're practicing it toward them. Mm. One of the, the, the words which is there less in the book, and it's interesting, is you don't talk a lot about love in sort of some romantic sort of Hollywood sense. It, your, your concern seems to be at some, some more profound level. I mean, is, is, have I misread that? Or is it, you seem like you, you're saying, well, love is one of these things which Hollywood's had conjured up, but there are more important levels. Maybe I've got that wrong, but no, I think you've really got it right. I think love, I do refer to love in the book, and I think I refer to it the way that the psychiatrist M. M. Scott Peck described it, which is love is a verb. It's it, Love isn't something that you have, it's something that you do. Love is um, practicing acting in the best interests of the other, or what you believe to be the best interests of the other person. And that's really the way that I approach love. And this doesn't mean that romantic love is not a form of love. It certainly is and can be. But I think a lot of us have been duped into, I don't even want to say duped because I don't think it's strategic, but a lot of us have been led to believe simply because we haven't been taught to disbelieve the myth that love just, you know, just happens. We, we tend to conflate infatuation with love. We tend to, mm. you know, buy into these stories that, oh, you know, I, I feel a connection with you. Therefore I'm falling in love with you. Therefore I'm somehow meant to be with you. And, you know, as probably most people listening can know that this often heads us down a very dangerous path. <laughs> Right. It's, I mean, that's, it's interesting, the word infatuation. You also use this other word, which I've never heard, but limerence. Is that, is that something like infatuation? You know, that their eyes met across a, a crowded room and they just knew in that instant, which I, 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 you read in books and hear in films, and I have to say, oh, it never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and when it does happen, often people find out after the fact that, you know, there actually isn't a long stand, a substantial connection here that a genuine, healthy relationship can be built on. There was a feeling of attraction. And that feeling of attraction came from probably, you know, a gazillion factors. So and so reminded you of a caretaker you had when you were a child who treated you in a certain way and they have a certain body shape that you've been socialized to find attractive and so on and so forth. But limerence is a, a word 
argues to describe the state of what we would consider infatuation or maybe even being in love, right? It's a, it's a state, it's a, a neuropsychological state where our brain is basically activated in the same way that it would be activated if we were addicted to something, a drug or alcohol or a behavior. And very often the, the experience of being in love is like the experience of, of, of addiction. You know, we go through withdrawal when the object of love is taken away, we can become obsessive and not stop thinking about them. And I don't mean to knock romantic love. There's a place for it. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's just that love is beyond this book. In in my book, I wanted to talk about what healthy relationships look like across the board. This formula that I talk about, it doesn't just apply to your romantic partner. It applies to the person sitting next to you on the bus and or the train and how you interact with them, the cashier, your family, you know, dog or cat and the other animals with whom we share the planet. But also even with romantic love, I mean, there's a, there is that sort of initial phase when you're madly in love, Mm -hmm. but if it's going to last, if you're going to spend a, you know, a portion of your life with that person, you don't spend it madly in love. You spend it in something that's love, but it's not madly in love. It's something else. It's it's what you're writing about, isn't it? That's right. And limerence is just not sustainable. I mean, generally, it lasts, I think, between six and 18 months, you know, that sort of on average, because if it lasted longer than that, we would never get anything done, frankly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's important that it wears off. But a lot of people, again, who they bought into this belief that, uh uh-oh, if I don't feel this intense passion for my partner, or if I don't feel a lot of passion for my partner, that means something's wrong. You know, this phrase, I've fallen out of love. What does that even mean? You know, what that technically means is that the stage of limerence has subsided, but does that mean something's wrong with your relationship? No, that means your relationship's following a normal course. You know, very often people tend to over-focus on the experience of connection and relationship and assume that like, if I don't feel highly connected to you all the time, then there's somehow something missing in our relationship. And, and that's not necessarily true either. All relationships go through this natural cycle of connection, disconnection, and reconnection. And very often what matters most in a relationship is how people do reconnect after periods of disconnection. How do you come back together, especially if there was a conflict in the disconnecting period? Yes, I mean, it's one of the things you you write in the book which struck me. It's a very simple thought, but you said it's it's much easier to avoid damage in a relationship than it is to put it right afterwards. Such a simple thought, but when I read it, I, I sort of sat back and thought, yeah, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, prevention, you know, again, this is all about building relational literacy because when you are more relationally literate, then you actually know how to prevent problems in a relationship. Number one, you know that they can and should be prevented, right? In the first place, because to your point, most of us aren't thinking about our relationships the way we think about jobs, you know, our jobs where we really have to show up and we we do it every day. Your relationship isn't something you have. It's something you do. All of our relationships, it doesn't just exist because somehow people came together and established a connection. It exists because we're feeding it. And, um, you know, hopefully we're feeding it for better and not for worse. Yeah. Let's talk about I mean, the, the book broadly, you talk about the things which are involved in a relationship and the things which can go wrong with it. And then later you talk about, right, well, how can we fix it? Or how, you know, but let's, let's talk about the, the first, you, you talk about resilience and security and connection. That's, that forms the first part. Tell us a little bit about why you chose those words and what, they, what you want us to understand. 
Well, you know, as I was saying with the formula, when we look at healthy relationships, healthy relationships, this is what they have in common. Like the healthier your relationship is, the more securely connected you will feel in that relationship. And, and this, like I said, this really applies across the board. And I, you know, talk about in the book, I say that relationships, healthy relationships are like healthy bodies or relationships in general are like bodies. They, they get sick when their immune system is lower than the germ that they're exposed to. That's, I know an oversimplification, but you know, for a body, we want to keep our physical immune system strong so that we can withstand and bounce back from the, the germs, the stressors that we encounter. Our relationship is very similar in that the stronger our relational immune system is, the more resilient our relational immune system is, the better able we are to withstand and bounce back from the inevitable stressors that we encounter. The world is full of stressors, right? And if your relationship is strong and resilient, that means it is secure and connected, then when life throws you curveballs, when somebody loses their job, when somebody has a really bad day and loses their temper and says things that they really wish they hadn't said, the relationship is much better able to withstand that and bounce back from that and even deepen in connection because of it. Because when we're more resilient, we know how to recover from disconnections better. Tell us a little bit more about what the components of being connected are. Because I could imagine that someone says, well, you know, I'm, I, I turn up at five after work and here I am. And, uh, you know, what's the problem? I'm here. Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, we're all people are all different. You know, we're all we're very, in some ways we are very, very different from one another. You know, our personality types are different. Our attachment styles are different. Your attachment style determines the degree of intimacy you need in a given relationship. Often it's your, your romantic relationship, but not always. Um, so you might have an attachment style that makes you seek a lot of intimacy, closeness, and connected, the feeling of connectedness and authentic sharing. You might have an attachment style that's called avoidant, where you actually want less or need less and fear intimacy. You might have an attachment style that's called secure, where you're somewhere in the middle and really quite balanced. People are very different in what they bring to relationships and what they need and what they need for connection. So some people only feel connected when they're having deep, open, intimate conversations where they're, you know, seen and, you know, feel like they're truly being seen. And, you know, for other people, they need a lot less of that. They're more looking for shared activities. So one thing that's really important is to really understand what you need in order to feel connected. There are these, I write about the, the seven different sort of domains of connection or areas in which people seek connection in their relationships. And so there's, you know, physical connection. It doesn't have to be sexual. It could be, you know, just touch togetherness, closeness, lifestyle connection, um, psychological connection, where we feel intellectually stimulated and so on. All of that said, there are certain things that all of us need in order to feel connected. And we have to trust that the other person perceives us, honors our dignity. If you perceive somebody as looking down on you, as seeing you as less than feeling contempt for you. And we can talk about contempt in a bit because it's a really important emotion to understand when we're talking about connection and relationships. If you do not trust that the other person will practice integrity toward you and honor your dignity and perceive you as worthy, you are probably not going to feel connected with them and you're not going to feel secure with them. So this is something we all need. And most of us also need to feel that we're witnessed 
I would say compassionately witness. This is a phrase that came from, um, comes from an author called Kathy Weingarten, who was talking about collective trauma. Compassionate witnessing is bearing witness to another. It's empathizing with another, seeing another with compassion and without judgment. So all of us need to know that our inner world matters to others, that our inner world is to some degree understood that other people, the other people in our lives are interested into us, that they're tuned into us. So compassionate witnessing or witnessing is really fundamental to creating connection, no matter who you are, what your attachment style is, or what your personality type is. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you talk about different connection styles, is that something that you think people would benefit from from discussing amongst themselves because there's a sort of tension isn't there between in a relationship with how much of a relationship do you want to make explicit like we would talk about you've got this relationship connection style and I've got this and how much do you think is it, is it always better to talk about it to, to, to have it as something that you've discussed or does it somehow suck the romance out or is that one of those Hollywood fables? I think that's one of those Hollywood fables. I think yeah. that, you know, people, they're, they're, <laughs> we're not talking about, you know, sharing a bathroom together all the time. We're talking about having conversations about what you need in order to feel secure and connected with each other. And we're not mind readers, even though most of us believe that we are and act like we are, we're not mind readers. And we can't possibly attend to the other person's needs in the way they need us to, without them telling us, giving us an opportunity to do the right thing and to do right by them. And if you think about it, really, relationships are all about needs. We feel connected with each other when more of our needs are being met. We feel less connected when fewer of our needs are being met. And I talked about you know, one common need that we all have, which is to be witnessed, and another one, which is to have our dignity honored. But people have different types of needs. And if you think back over the course of your relationships and the relationships in your life right now, chances are the relationships you feel best in are the relationships where more of your needs are being met. We don't have to have all of our needs met 100%. We just need to have enough of our needs met being enough, whether it's your need for intellectual stimulation, your need for play or humor or order in your home. Um, so, and, you know, we cannot expect that other people will meet our needs if we don't tell them what they are. And if they don't know who we are and how we're wired, because we're looking at the world through very different eyes. I mean, our personality types are determining to a large degree how we see the world. Our attachment style is determining to a large degree how we see the world. When we understand other people's personalities and styles and needs, it's, we can speak their language a lot better. We kind of become polylingual. 
Mm. Yes, it's one of the things you, you talk about in the book in a really interesting way. You talk about being needy and what a strange concept that is to call someone needy. And also, as you say, you, you, you advocate very much speaking up and saying, well, look, I need this. And there's not something wrong with telling someone deliberately to their face that you need something. Is that something that we need to feel more comfortable with? We, it's a need. We need to feel the, more comfortable with this. this idea of needy yeah. people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, we, because we have been socialized into this really kind of hyper masculine way of being in many ways is, you know, to believe in the myth that we can and should be islands unto ourselves and need nobody. We've all learned, you know, men and boys in particular, but people of all genders have learned to perceive needs and particularly relational needs as something to be ashamed of. And that's really tricky and really dangerous because when we feel ashamed of having needs, as soon as a need comes up, our tendency is going to be to stuff it down or to tell us we shouldn't tell ourselves we shouldn't have that need and to ignore it. And when we do that, we don't articulate the need to the other person and we don't give them the opportunity to make us happy and to give us what mm. we need. Most of us really want to feel competent in our relationships and we cannot be competent if we're not given some guidelines, if we're not even told what we need to do in order to succeed. And you may have had this experience, it's not uncommon of somebody telling you, I don't know how unhappy they are with you and something that you've been doing that they never bothered to point out six years ago when it started happening. So, <laughs> so they were just simmering for six years. You didn't have an opportunity to course correct. And now it's just too late because they've had it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, <laughs> what is it you said when someone says that they need something and then you turn around and just say, well, you stop being so needy. You said it's a bit like punching someone on the nose and then complaining to them that they're bleeding on the carpet. Right. And then getting mad at them that they've bled on the carpet. Right. <laughs> so, so we have to really like, you know, change, I think our narrative and, and understanding of needs. And, and when we do this and when we can be more open and transparent and give people the guidance that they need in order to connect with us in the way we need to be connected with, we give them and we give ourselves a, a, a great gift. Yes. It's sort of, it's the flip side from someone who says, well, I, I want to find someone to love. And it's saying, and it's allowing someone else to love you, letting them know what it is that would be loving you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's, there's, you know, also this belief that we've all bought into, I think just because it sounded good when somebody said it a thousand years ago or whenever it came out and, and nobody really questioned it or something, but you have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. And I mean, I grew up believing that. And I was like, okay, how am I going to love somebody else? Because I want to fall in love and I want to be able to love people, but I need to love me. And I don't know if I love me. And, <laughs> and, you know, and I, as I was writing, getting re relationships, right. I was kind of deconstructing this and like, we just learned this. It came from somewhere and it seemed, it sounded good and clever and profound. So we just believed it. And this is the way we learned a lot of our, you know, sort of relationship advice, but there's lots of evidence demonstrating that, that people, we learn to love ourselves through loving others. I mean, people, new parents can tell you this people who fall in love or find love for the quote unquote, first time in their lives can say, this helped me love myself. And this is sort of the beauty of the beauty, the profound beauty of building relational literacy. It's all win. It's the more I become a healthy relational being and I'm able to practice love, whether it's toward myself or toward, you know, somebody I don't know that well, or my romantic partner, the more I can practice love more generally, the healthier we become relationally, 
the better able we are to create relational family systems, relational systems in our world, and just a more relational world in general. And I really do believe that a fundamental key to changing from a world in which oppression is essentially the norm, a world that's replete with violence to a world that's relational, is learning how to be relational beings ourselves. Mm. Yes, you, you contrast, um, you save it to the end of the book, but you contrast individuality with relationships. In other words, it, it's sort of reimagining how we should build not just the world, but ourselves. Instead of building me and then branching out, it's building relationships and building those is what builds me. Is that right? That's right. And vice versa, because we're always in relationship with ourselves. And so the more we relate to ourselves, whether it's through our self-talk or through our life choices that, as I said, impact our future selves and so on in a way that's loving and compassionate, the more we learn to do that to others as well. It's a practice. Healthy relationality is a practice. So every time I practice integrity and honor the dignity of somebody else or of myself. I'm building that muscle. I'm building that relational muscle in myself. And the healthier we get relationally, the lower our tolerance is for toxicity or, you know, I call it non-relationality or non-relational behaviors. It's like, again, like a body. If you smoke and you eat really unhealthy processed food, and then you just stop smoking and you start eating a lot more healthfully, your body, if you introduce cigarettes and you introduce those foods again, you know, months or years later, your body is going to react to them as though they're poison for you, which they essentially are. It's the same thing with our relationships. The healthier we become in our own relational lives, the more readily we will notice and react to relational toxicity around us. And this will affect all of our choices, our political choices and our lifestyle choices, how we treat the planet, how we treat other humans and how we treat other animals. Hmm. Let's talk about contempt because you sort of bring that in as the enemy of that healthy relationship. Tell us what you what you see, the, the, what is contempt in this and what is its role in this? Well, shame and contempt are what I call two sides of the non-relational coin. These are two of the most disconnecting of all emotions. We feel shame when we feel less than. So let me actually just differentiate shame from guilt because a lot of people tend to use these words synonymously, but they're not the same. Guilt is how we feel when we believe that we've done something wrong or we've done something bad. Okay. So guilt is how we feel about a behavior. So we feel guilty when we think I did something bad. Shame is how we feel about ourselves. When we feel guilt, we think I did something bad. When we feel shame, we think I am bad. And shame is a feeling of being less than more specifically. It's about being less worthy than others. Harms to our dignity is what causes us to feel shame when people perceive and communicate to us that we are less worthy than we can also shame ourselves. Most of us do this a lot of the time because we've been born into a deeply relationally dysfunctional world such that shaming communication is so normal as to be unremarkable. And we learn to shame each other. I mean, just open up, you know, any online platform turn on most news stations and we communicate in a way that that is shaming that's putting others down. And so so most of us are very defensive against feeling shame because number one most of us carry around a lot of shame to begin with, but we tend to hide it. We tend to because we often 
feel ashamed of feeling shame. So we hide our shame from ourselves. We hide our shame from others. And they've done a number of studies looking at people's reactions, responses to feeling shamed or even the threat of feeling shamed. And they've found that people go into a state of what's called hyperarousal. They're, you know, basically defensive on high alert. Even if it seems imperceptible to you, if you're on the receiving end of a shaming behavior, or you feel even the threat of being shamed by somebody, you're going to withdraw or attack in self-defense. And inside of you, you're going to get somewhat triggered and, and you know, wound up fight. You'll be in a fight, fight or flight or freeze state. This means that you have less access to your rational faculties. So you're less likely to think rationally and you're less connected to your empathy. And studies have shown you're more likely to react by shaming them or by communicating in a way that's harmful to them. Somebody puts you down, you turn around and put them down. And so shaming behaviors, non-relational behaviors in general, those that violate the formula, right? Or go against the formula, they're contagious. Study after study has shown that when we're on the receiving end of a non-relational behavior, whether it's like a insulting email, for instance, or somebody like flips us off in the car, or even, you know, subtle eye rolls where people are, you know, showing, expressing judgment toward us, we're likely to reproduce that behavior. And we either do it directly back to the person who did it to us and, or, we will reproduce a non-relational behavior later in the day to somebody who had nothing to do with the original incident. So researchers even say that these behaviors spread like the common cold. So, so that's shame. And it's a very problematic emotion. The flip side of shame, as I said, is, is contempt. So we feel shame when we feel that we're less worthy than others. When we feel contempt, it's as a red flag that we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority to others. We're looking down on others and perceiving them as less than. So noticing can be very helpful for people to just notice, you know, develop your inner observer and try to take note of when these two, one of these two emotions is arising in you, because that's a data point. It's really important information for you to have about yourself. And these emotions only exist in comparison. They can exist independently. We can't feel less worthy than if there's nobody who's more worthy and vice versa. They only exist when we have bought into a false belief, a false narrative that some individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated with respect than others. If we don't buy into this, we're not going to feel contempt or shame. Easier said than done, because we have to undo a lifetime of conditioning to not buy into this, but it can be helpful, especially for listeners, you know, people who do struggle with shame, to recognize that a lot of the shame that we feel, all of the shame that we feel is the result of a narrative, a story that we're making up about ourselves. Hmm. And you said in the book that there are, there are actually, um, I forget what you called it, but books that purport to tell, to tell you how to date people. And you're suggesting that some of them actually go out of their way to suggest that you do this, this sort of slightly shaming, which t- tell us about that, because I've led a sheltered life. I didn't know about this. <laughs> so there are, you know, some of the manuals on how to get people to be attracted to you are using an approach that is, yeah, it's basically the the opposite of the formula for healthy relating. It's it's wielding power. It's basically a way to 
wield power and control over somebody else. So for example, the goal is not to connect or to create a secure connection. The goal is not to have an authentic interaction and find somebody who may be a match for you. The goal is to attract people to you. And this can involve, you know, achieving this goal can include a number of strategies such as identify in this case, you know, a woman, identify a woman that you want to uh, have attracted to you, but talk to her friend if her friend is less attractive and the assumption she is because you want the most attractive person. So there are all sorts of problems with this to make her feel like she wants your attention. Don't call her back right away. Make her wait. Always keep the upper hand. A lot of, a lot of our dating advice and, and there's plenty of dating advice. That's not like this, but you know, the dating world is a microcosm of the world world. And in the world world, we do learn to derive our sense of power from having more power than others, to feel more attractive by comparing ourselves to those who are less attractive and to, you know, manipulate people into giving us what we want them to give us because we're afraid to make ourselves vulnerable, especially when it comes to dating. People are afraid to make themselves vulnerable, understandably, because a lot of people, most people have been, we've all been screwed up. I mean, I'll just say it like it is. I mean, we've been born into a very dysfunctional world. Most of us had caretakers who did the best they could with what they had and they didn't have a lot, you know? So we, we've all gotten screwed up in one way or another, and we're kind of just figuring out how to do this relationship thing as we go along. And it's very scary to be vulnerable with another person who you don't know well, and you you haven't trusted yet. And I wouldn't even recommend that we make ourselves vulnerable unless we know somebody well. But what some people do in, in some of these books encourage people to do is to develop these defensive strategies. So you keep yourself safe while trying to get the other person to be vulnerable. And in this way, you know, your ego is protected at the expense of theirs. But surely you're going to end up with a relationship where there's a dreadful power imbalance and the other person is going to be unhappy at some point, surely. That doesn't sound like a recipe for a very strong, resilient, ongoing relationship. No, but it could be a recipe for a one night stand, which is what certain books are, you know, (laughs) purporting when they're telling people how to date. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the things that you talk about as to the way that I, well, you talk about them in terms of maintaining a relationship, a strong, resilient relationship, but presumably it's also a, a strategy for attracting relationship you you make a lot about listening and i found that really interesting because most people think you know listening you don't have to do anything you just sit there and you're listening but it's not really that simple is it it's not really that simple <laughs> and um i mean it is and it isn't it's it's lis- listening with presence i mean it gets back to what we were talking about earlier which is compassionate witnessing and you know and very often we do believe that listening is simply the absence of speaking <laughs> But if you've ever talked to somebody, you know, where you've say you have a conversation, you've shared your thoughts and your feelings, and, you know, maybe it's one of those conversations, a conversation with a capital C, and then they've been listening the whole time in that they're facing you and not saying anything. And then you're done and it's radio silence. Did you hear me? Well, of course I heard you. I'm right here. Okay. What did you think? Yeah. 
Thanks. Thanks for sharing. You're not going to feel very validated. You're not going to feel very connected and the conversation is not going to go very far. So listening needs to be an active process and learning, building effective communication is, is a game changer. I mean, building relational literacy is a game changer in life. It's like almost like the difference between being able to read and write, being literate in that way and not being able to read and write. You just can move through the world and so much, your life gets so much easier in so many ways. And building effective communication is is really fundamental to building effective uh, or building relational literacy. Learning how to listen effectively to be an active listener can also be a game changer. So you are present to the conversation. You are literally, you are present. You are in the moment. You're paying attention to what the other person is saying and you're showing them because again, people are not mind readers, even though we often think they are, we have to show people what we think and what we feel and what we're taking away from them talking. So if you're an active listener, you're doing what you're doing. You're, by the way, a great active listener, as I'm sure you know, all the right things. And and I can tell because my energy level talking to you doesn't go down, even though this is a podcast. And that's the sign of a great listener and a really good active listener is they're giving you feedback, even without interrupting you and commenting on everything you're saying. They're making eye contact, they're nodding, they're asking follow-up questions so you know that they heard what you said. And if you're having a conversation with somebody, particularly a difficult conversation, it can be really useful if you're the listener to summarize what you heard so that they know the other person knows that you heard them. You're giving them feedback. I listened to you, what you said mattered. I heard you. Yeah, yeah. It's not about being right or wrong, is it? I mean, this is something my mum used to say to me. She said, if you're in a conversation, you shouldn't be having a conversation to find out which one of you is right. That's not a conversation. Yeah. And she said it really, really well. And in, in communication, every communication has two parts, the content and the process. The content is what we're communicating about. The process is how we're communicating. We tend to over-focus on the content. We just want to get the words right. We just want to get the concepts right. However, the process matters more. So if you think about a conversation you had maybe six months ago, chances are you might have forgotten the entire content. Like you don't even remember what you talked about, but you probably still remember how you felt in that conversation. The process determines how you feel in a conversation. And so when your process is healthy, it reflects the formula for healthy relating. When your process is healthy, your goal is not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong. It's not to win, which means to make the other person lose. It's mutual understanding. The only reason we communicate in the first place is because we're not mind readers. The goal of a communication is to share our thoughts and feelings with the other person and to understand their thoughts and feelings. And, and often needs. And so, you know, when you're having a communication, when you're having a conversation and you notice that you're like, yeah, trying to be right, you know, that, that can be a red flag. Now, if you're on the receiving end of somebody who's not practicing the formula, they're using power in a way that's destructive. You're probably going to be feeling uncomfortable in a conversation. And that doesn't mean that you're not your process isn't healthy. It could mean that the other person's process isn't healthy and that you're sort of feeling like you have to push your point forward, push your agenda, you know, maybe because they're not listening to you or they're not taking in what you're saying. And it sort of gets to another point that you talk about narratives because it's, you know, you're saying, well, each person has a, a narrative and it's whether you're trying to force your narrative on the other person or 
it's not so much just accept the other person's narrative, is it? It's somehow trying to get inside it to understand. Uh, yeah, it's exactly you know right. I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, the, we were talking about contempt and shame earlier. The antidote to both of those emotions is the same, and that's empathy. It is impossible to look down on or up at somebody else when you're looking at the world through their eyes. And this is the same when it comes to narratives. It's, it's understanding and empathy. So it's not about saying, you know, your narrative is the story that you're telling yourself, the story in your mind about a situation, for example, about what's happening. So two people could be having an argument. They have very different narratives about what's going on. And one narrative may, in fact, be more accurate. Right. You can have somebody, especially, uh, you know, an extreme example would be an abusive relationship where, you know, the abuser's narrative is like, you made me do it. You're such a problem. That's why I'm abusing you. And or there is no abuse in the first place. Right. So not all narratives are equally accurate. And of course, in cases where there's an extreme power imbalance and an unsafe relationship, then a lot of what we're talking about here doesn't actually apply because safety has to happen first. But let's say you've got two people, they're having an argument, they've got different narratives about what's happening. First of all, they generally don't even know that they have different narratives. They think they're operating from within the same narrative, and that's part of the mm -hmm. problem. Stepping back, the step one is recognizing you've probably got different narratives. Step two is what is your narrative? You know, And this is where listening comes in. I'm not going to tell you your narrative is right or your narrative is wrong. I just want to hear it. What's your story? What's your interpretation of what transpired here? What's the meaning that you're making of it? What have you perceived? And then I'll tell you what I have interpreted and I have perceived. So each person really knows what the other person is thinking. Uh, so it's not so much saying it's not focusing on the thing that the person did that annoyed you. It's trying to understand what it was, what collection of fears they might have had, which led them to do this thing. So it's, it's trying to get behind the thing which annoyed you and say, well, why did this happen? What is this person afraid of? What, what is the legacy that they're that has prompted them to be like this. Is and that, that can be a piece of it. Um, you know, and, and again, it, it doesn't necessarily justify a problematic behavior. There's a difference between an excuse and an explanation. Having the explanation can be really helpful. So you did this, you know, say your partner is leaving their clothes all over the floor and you have to pick them up all the time and you're really frustrated about it. Like that is a, a tangible, real problem in and of itself that obviously needs to be addressed understanding what's going on behind it can make a really big difference. The partner might say, it's not that I feel disrespectful of you. It's that I'm having a really hard time right now doing anything because I've been really depressed and I can't even bring myself to brush my own teeth, no matter how important that is to me. So it's taking more effort than you realize. And understanding that partner needs to understand the other person's narrative, which is my narrative is that you don't care about me. My narrative is that, you know, my needs don't matter to you and, you know, you're lazy or whatever it may be. So really understanding each other's narratives can go a very long way. And then coming together to create a more accurate narrative of what happened, especially when there's been a conflict and an argument. Yes. And you also talk about, you, you then say, fine, well, okay, we, we've, you, we've identified that there's something going wrong with our relationship and that we have different narratives. But then you say, you talk about asking for change. And it was very interesting because you say, you know, you have to decide what change you have a right to ask for. I thought that was a very, tell us what you mean by that, because that was quite a subtle and interesting point, I thought. 
Well, I mean, there, another belief that most of us have inherited is this idea that, you know, if you, if you love me, take me as I am, you know, you've chosen to be with me. This is particularly in romantic relationships, right? Well, Hey, you married me. You knew who I was here. I am, you know, love me or leave me, but don't try to change me. You don't have a right to ask me to change, but people are different. People are always growing. We're always growing into new versions of ourselves. So our needs are going to be changing over time. And we need to be able to say this behavior uh, is uncomfortable for me and it doesn't work for me. And I need, I, I, I need you to know that. And then you can decide whether you want to change it or not. So we have a right to ask for change. It's tricky. Asking for somebody to change a behavior is easier and more straightforward than asking for somebody to change an attitude, for example. And because attitudinal change is something that is, it's not really as much our business most people feel more defensive when we ask them to change an attitude than they do when we ask them to change a behavior, in part because the behavior directly impacts us. And when something directly impacts us, it becomes our business, if that makes sense. So I can say, I really need you to stop leaving your socks on the floor because I'm looking for something that most people can relate to. I really need you to start leaving dirty, dirty dishes in the sink. I really need you to do that for me versus I really need you to value a clean house. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're starting to get questions coming in. The, the, the first one, it's a, it's a very interesting one. I'll, I'll read it. Given that most communication is online, in writing these days. Uh, yes, a familiar problem. What's the most effective way we can adopt the practice of having difficult conversations? I tried to do this, got burned when I raised the flag that something didn't seem right and ended up getting shamed. There's that word. I lost a friend of 35 years. What would be your advice to rectifying it? I had to end the relationship because we couldn't have face-to-face -face conversation about our feeling. That sounds like a very modern it is. It's very difficult. It's very modern. I mean, I would say that whenever possible, don't have those conversations online. Just do them in face-to-face -face. whenever possible. Crucial conversations, important conversations, having them face-to-face -face can make a huge difference. This next best step is just having them on the phone, but at least you're in voice. When we communicate online, you know, particularly if we're communicating on any kind of like a chat forum, that forum is really set up in a way to limit the communication so that it is really unnuanced. It's short, it's brief. We can't communicate with our bodies, um, with our voices. So that's really tricky. I would also like to say that for many things, and I don't know about this, um, this listener's experience, but, but very often we think, oh my God, I've completely screwed up a communication. We've had a huge fallout, a huge fight now. Now what do we do? Many times repair is still possible. If you go back to that person after and say, listen, is it possible? Can we have a voice conversation? I want to, I want to talk this out. I want to try to repair this. There's a great, I should say, um, 
approach to communicating in a way that reduces the chances that we'll get a shaming response. And it's referred to as whole messages. Sometimes the process of nonviolent communication uses this type of message where you communicate your observations, your interpretations, and then your feelings of any particular situation, any particular experience. You can do this online as well, and it will not prevent problems from happening, but it will reduce the likelihood that you have online communication or problems with your online communications or any communication. So what you do is you state your observation of the problem. So for example, when I told you that um, I was frustrated with what you said to me, you said that I was an extremist. So that's literally an observation. You're saying verbatim what happened. Your observation is something that everybody would agree on. And then you go to your interpretation of that observation. I came away from that thinking that you're looking down on me. I came away from that thinking that you're telling me something's wrong with me. Then you say your feelings and your feelings like, I felt really offended by this. And if you want, you can follow up with your needs. This model, it's a nonviolent communications model. Some authors call it, the author McKay and his colleagues call it whole messages, is a great way for preventing communication from spiraling because what you're doing is you're taking responsibility for your narrative. You're saying, here's the problem and here's my interpretation. Are I'm you not separating the two you. out? Totally. Right. And that change, that is a game changer in communications. And you can apply that even to these brief online That makes a lot of sense because you're, you're then not starting off trying to say to the other person, even unwittingly, my interpretation of what happened is the one that counts. You're, you're stepping back and saying, this is what we know happened. And now I separate out my interpretation. So you're allowing the space for the other person to have their own interpretation. And then exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that's where the clash so often happens. And you can do this in, in a different order. Like I often, you know, start with my interpretation. I can say something like, or even my feeling, I can say, you know, maybe if my husband and I are having a difficult conversation, I can say, oh, you know what, my feelings were really hurt by something. You said such and such. And, you know, I just automatically thought, oh, he doesn't care about me. And it's a very casual, you know, way of saying it, but, but by doing that, I'm not saying you made me feel this way, or, you know, this is what, you know, you are blaming me. I'm not blaming him. I'm saying you did this, you said this, this happened, whatever the observable event was. And therefore this is how I'm impacted. Yes. Because there are, there are always going to be differences in any relationship, aren't there? I mean, it's not something and, and also, if there weren't, imagine how dull it would be if there were no differences. Um, it would be absolutely hideous. So we want the differences. So then it's just a matter of how you manage those differences and, and don't allow them to spiral out of control. Yeah, exactly. I mean, very often we assume that the problems that we have in our relationships, our interactions is because of our differences. And, and it's true, you know, different needs can cause, differences can cause clashing needs. However, how we relate to our differences matters most. And this is what we really need to, to remember and pay attention to. Underneath our differences is a relationship between people. And that's where our focus needs to be. Yes. It's another question from another anonymous attendee. What if you ask clearly for something important to you and nothing happens for years, despite reminders? This is sounding hideously familiar. I'd like you to 
take me out on the date you have prearranged, i.e. not a last minute afterthought thing, as an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what that do you is, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it can be so frustrating for, for people when they feel like, and I, I don't know if the, this person feels this way, but a lot of people can say they feel like they're screaming into a vacuum. Like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, and nothing is changing, you know, and, and this is where you start to have a conversation about why nothing is changing, you know, the process rather than the content. Okay. So let's not talk about the date. Let's talk about the fact that there's something that I've said is really important to me and you have heard me, but not actually responded to that in a way that's taken action. And I'm curious about why that's not happening. It has nothing to do with the date in this case, right? So, and, and have that conversation really, really directly. So many reasons could be coming into, there could be so many reasons for this. Sometimes people don't want to do something And they don't want to say no. So they just keep saying yes and then never following through. And there could be a million reasons they don't want to do something. Sometimes people, you know, classic example is they have ADHD, adult ADHD, and, you know, which is a a relational, uh, creates a lot of relational problems where a person has a really hard time paying attention, remembering things and acting on things that they've said that they would act on. And so many people in these situations, partners, for example, or family members have exactly this experience. It seems so simple. It seems so straightforward. It's not getting done. You know, what's wrong with this picture? Yes. And presumably though, you, that leads us back to someone saying, I can imagine the answer being, oh, stop being so needy. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you can, I can imagine that too, because it happens all the time, you know, and if somebody does say that, who's an important person in your life, and their response to you expressing a need to them is to be, say, don't be so needy, that's important information for you to have, you know, because you, you need to be, everybody needs to be with a partner, you know, or a person in their life who is going to honor their needs and not judge them for having needs and not get angry for having needs being expressed. If somebody is getting angry because you're expressing needs, that's fundamentally non-relational and a relationship like that's not sustainable. Now, this doesn't mean people can't change. And one of the great things about building relational literacy is that the more relationally literate you are, the more skillfully you move through your own interactions and the more you increase the chances that the other person in your life or people in your life will become more relational as well. You help them. We help each other be our better selves. If you continually relate to a person in your life in a way that's healthy, if you're giving them their direct feedback, you're providing the tools for them to give you what you need, and they're resisting this and not changing and not breaking the pattern, then that's important information for you to have. And you need to decide whether this relationship is something that that is going to continue to serve you. I really encourage people to to really try to get the people in your life to build relational literacy with you because it it helps you to relate so, so much more effectively. Is it hard doing that? I mean, as someone who is emotionally literate, you must go through life helping people to be emotionally more. But do people always welcome it or do people bridle at the thought that you're helping them? I mean, I can see, I, I can see that it might be sometimes difficult to mm-hmm. constantly be helping somebody, the other person be emotionally lit, more literate and that they might start to, it might start to piss them off. 
it doesn't make any sense that they should be pissed off, but I can imagine it happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if I were in a situation where it was that unbalanced and I was in a teacher position with a student, that wouldn't be a balanced adult relationship. It wouldn't work. So, you know, generally people bring different strengths to their relationships and some people are more relational than others. And those people tend to do more of the maintenance work in their relationships, but ideally it's not this huge imbalance in a relationship. Okay, we're running out of time, but there's one more question. Um, Christine makes an interesting point, says, an inability to actively listen seems to be characteristic of the elderly, or some of my older friends' relatives. It's very sad as it makes you not want to spend time with them when it's the very thing they most want and need. That's an interesting observation, isn't it? It is interesting. And I mean, I think this is, you know, I'd be careful not to apply this to all older people, right? And, you know, people are all very more different than they are similar, even (laughs) so am I, (laughs) but um, all elderly people, maybe I should say. So, so at the same time, it, it is, you know, generations, people have different norms, you know, that they've inherited from different generations. And Sometimes, you know, we can, there are different ways that people can connect. And one of the things that we need to do, especially in relationships that are more tangential in our lives, right? And we're not talking about your romantic partner, but maybe you're talking, we're talking about your grandmother or your grandfather. And, you know, it's important for us to be willing to connect with people in ways that are connecting for them, even if they're not connecting for us. So, you know, I have, I have relatives who, who connect through shared activities, you know, what they really want to do when they get together with me is not talk about our lives and what's been going on. They want to go for bike rides and, you know, go out for dinner and that's their way of connecting. And I know them well enough to know that's the way that they are going to connect. They are not going to suddenly become a compassionate witness and go into some deep listening exercise with me. And that's fine. And all relationships are different. And you really just, people just need to know what what you need to know, what you need to feel connected and have those relationships in your inner circle. And then from there you expand, you know, you've got friends, you've got acquaintances, you've got your neighbors, you've got your grandparents falling somewhere in here. And not all of our relationships have to be heavy and connected or, or connected the way that we want to connect, I should say. Listen, Melanie, thank you so much for talking to us. I wish we had time to carry on. It's been a pleasure to connect with you. Yeah, the pleasure's <laughs> in mind. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. This episode of the podcast starred Melanie Joy and was presented by David Malone. The show is produced by me and Esme Bright, and our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate us and write us a review. If you didn't, don't worry about it. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>